are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up this evening with step number 24 on meekness and simplicity. And we're also speaking about guile or guilelessness. And uh, it's not a word that you hear used very often. And I think John uh, does a wonderful job in describing it for us, what it looks like, and also some of the ways that we can seek to overcome it in our life. And uh, so number 20, where we're picking up this evening, uh, is actually John's definition. If you remember, typically at the beginning of each of his steps, he'll define the vice or the virtue that he's describing. Uh, but since there are multiple uh, virtues that he's describing uh, within this section, he takes the time to pause and define its opposite here. So again, we're on number 20. Guile is a perversion of honesty, a deluded way of thinking, a lying disposition, false oaths, ambiguous words, a dark secrecy of heart, an abyss of cunning, deceit that has become habit, conceit turned into nature, a foe of humility, a pretense of repentance, an estrangement from mourning, hostility to confession, a teacher of willfulness, a cause of falls, a hindrance to resurrection, a smiling at offenses, affected frowning, sham reverence, and diabolical life. It's an extraordinary definition. And, uh, you know, certainly one could spend an entire evening just on this one paragraph. And uh, certainly worth our while to go back and meditate upon this as we've so often said in the course of these groups, there are certain uh, sections that where we would want to go back and even memorize, uh, memorize them. And I think this is, again, one of those. Uh, again, uh, because it seems to touch so many aspects of the spiritual life, this kind of slyness or uh, cunning intelligence that, uh, you know, will seek to uh, use information in a kind of way that suits one's uh, own benefit uh, to manipulate truths uh, in one's own favor. And uh, when one enters into this very deeply, when it becomes something that is habitual, then it becomes a foe, as we see, to all these different kinds of virtues within the, the spiritual life. Uh, some of them are very striking. Uh, as we, we go through it. Uh, and uh, again, we could probably look at all of these, these things, but, uh, you know, a lying disposition, you know, a perversion of honesty. And so, you know, having this uh, kind of habitual way of distorting the truth of lying to others, uh, even when uh, there's nothing to be gained, uh, at least on the surface, that I, I think uh, being seen in a certain light or feeling that one that has the advantage in one form or another, uh, in, in the sense of controlling the details 
of cir circumstances, a feeling that one's in a position of emotional strength over the other and can manip manipulate situations because of it, circumstances because of it, that uh, this becomes uh, a devastating uh, vice if one comes under its grip. And so we see here that uh, it reaches very deep uh, within the human heart, so much so that he says it's an abyss of cunning, uh, a deceit that has become habit, uh, you know, a pretense of repentance. So even when it comes to uh, sorrow for one's sin, contrition, even this becomes a lie, an act, if you will. Uh, whether one is lying to oneself or to others, it's wanting to be seen as religious or pious. And uh, so in many ways, very close to hypocrisy, uh, hostility to confession. And I think from the, the, the previous ways that he defines it, we, we understand why. If it's a foe to humility, then one is not going to want to go to confession. Uh, to uh, open one's heart to another uh, in such a way that one experiences vulnerability, uh, allows one's, uh, as it were, underbelly to be seen, the weaknesses, the flaws uh, in character, as well as our attachment to particular sins. Guile would want uh, in every way to keep these things hidden. And uh, so to put on a kind of act or air of religiosity, and it's towards the end of the definition where he begins to describe this smiling at offenses, so uh, that one makes light of things that would be contrary to the will of God, as if they are of no significance, um, affected frowning. So, you know, over-exaggerating one's sadness about something, again, to give the appearance of uh, one's concern or, or disapproval uh, over something. And so if, if say, if uh, an individual who's filled with guile sees another person fall into a particular sin, uh, that they would have this kind of affected frowning. They would exaggerate it to show their displeasure uh, in such a way as to shame the other, rather than what we've heard the, the other saints tell us to do, St. Isaac the Syrian, we've heard it in the, in the Evergatinas as well, that we are to cloak another uh, when they experience weakness or a fall, that we are not to hold them up to the shame, uh, shameful gaze of, of, of others or to shame them in the, in the gaze of others. And uh, whereas guile seeks to do exactly the opposite, sham reverence. So a false kind of piety, you know, holding oneself, how one dresses, how one holds one's hands at prayer, how one stands at prayer, uh, you know, all of these things can, again, to can be putting on an act rather than arising out of a depth of piety uh, and a depth of desire for God. Uh, so the pious, overly pious expressions uh, on one's face or language, uh, how one talks about religion, uh, all these things can become uh, uh, overly affected. And then a diabolical life that it makes one's life in the end a lie that far from humility, which we've discussed as truthful living, uh, 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 one who's filled with guile is, has embraced the opposite, that it is uh, false living or living in falsehood. And uh, where one cannot, uh, accept or believe anything that, that that particular individual says. You remember when John talks about the sort of uh, when two individuals get together, the angry person and the sarcastic that person that you can't trust a word between the two of them. Uh, one is sort of out of control in, in, the, in the use of his emotions and the other is, you know, driven by kind of knavery and uh, I think this is sort of captured in uh, the person who is filled with guile, although it's more cunning, 
And I think that this is the, the distinctive element of it, that there is a kind of intelligence there that uh, about the human person and about others and the emotional life, uh, but it's misused, it's misdirected rather than to, to seek God or to, to seek intimacy with others. It uh, is really to seek one, to make oneself the center of reality or to manipulate the truth rather than embrace it. Uh, David Swiderski writes, uh, wouldn't this be what we would call today sociopaths? I would, I would say very close, especially when uh, it becomes habitual and where one has fall, fallen into the, this kind of abyss uh, of it, that the dis capacity to discern what is real and what is not, uh, it begins to diminish, but, but yet they are driven by this kind of high intelligence uh, where uh, they are, are manipulating uh, the things around them. Uh, and I think maybe that would be, you know, sociopaths at times might not know, be able to distinguish uh, reality. And maybe that would be more psycho psychopaths. Uh, sociopaths would probably be more along the line of what you're describing here, that there is this great intelligence that they can manipulate uh, the, the circumstances to confuse others or uh, manipulate them or harm them in some form or another. Uh, you're right, there is no empathy or concept of right or wrong. Working with executives in several public companies, I'm convinced this is abnormally high in that group. Yeah, you know, because I think, you know, where, you know, there is narcissism, you know, this kind of intense focus upon the self, and where you lose sight of the other, uh, where those around you are not seen as persons, but objects to be used and controlled at will. Uh, is where you, I think, descend into this level. And so a person with this kind of intelligence can uh, succeed in great measure within the world, but it's often on the backs of others. And, uh, and I think this is why John you know, creates, uh, paints such a, a dark image of it for us, because it's truly that way that, uh, and this can exist not only in, you know, worldly corporations, it could exist within the life of the church, too. And in some ways, it can become uh, even more diabolical. Because if you can twist that which is good or meant to be, be good and meant to serve others uh, in order to serve the self, then one becomes capable of the most heinous acts and abuse of the others as well as the truth. And, uh, and so, you know, when there's a fall of someone uh, who has a, you know, a, a religious position or religious uh, worldview, and but are, they're overcome by this vice, it, uh, they become the most dangerous of individuals, I think. Louise writes, Gal seems to be the modus vivendi of psychopaths or people called satanic souls. Right, I think it's, you know, hard, I think there would be sort of a crossover here, you know, because uh, one would tend perhaps to be more violent. And, uh, and, and so, you know, this use of this kind of cunning intelligence uh, to get one what, what one wants, that one would be willing to do whatever is needed to get that, including uh, the abuse or murder of others. So it's, again, you know, there's a kind of astuteness about the, the fathers, how, how John defines this and the various levels of it, I, I think is, is, is extraordinary. I mean, it's sort of what you would find in, uh, in sort of modern depth psychology works on sociopaths or psychopaths uh, is what he tends to describe here. What is meant by hindrance of resurrection? 
Well, I think you could be, you know, certainly the, the ultimate gift that is offered to us in Christ. But I think it's the exaltation that comes through humility. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That if Gao is the foe to humility and the aversion to truth, then one prevents oneself from uh, being raised up to experience the fullness of life. And so it's something that makes repentance an impossibility. And uh, it's almost, you know, what is described in the scriptures is the unforgivable sin. I think uh, the darkness here prevents repentance. And, uh, and there would again be a kind of a aversion to it and with that then a person is left left in the darkness uh, to be shaped by it anthony writes sorry anthony writes yesterday's gospel mentions guile christ addresses nathaniel as an israelite in whom there is no guile is that to show he was outstanding in a crowd of people uh, with Gao, or is it that he was an excellent specimen of a crowd of honest people? And what does that have to do with sitting under a fig tree? I think that's often the image of one uh, like being immersed in the scriptures, uh, sitting under a, a fig tree reading. And some of the commentaries I've, I've read about that uh, speculate that that's what uh, that's what Nathaniel was doing, that he was meditating upon the word of God. And uh, and and in doing that, this is what shapes his heart, that there is no gao in him, you know, but rather a humble spirit. And uh, And we see it, I think, in his response then to the words of Christ, that there's no impediment to his seeing the truth uh, about the one who stands before him and it, it almost brings a kind of joy to Christ you know that he believes so quickly uh, when he is told that he was seen under the fig tree that uh, that he had the, the vision of a humble person no impediment there to seeing the fullness of the truth uh, Louise writes uh, well, for second one, if you meet one, go away, leave the scene ASAP. Could we say that the ones are the bad seeds, the weeds? Uh, he got he got ones. I'm, I'm not sure. Is that okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, weeds among the wheat, I think, is true because, uh, and there is no. I think sorting them out. Uh, and I think Christ makes this pretty clear that uh, in the story about the weeds among the wheat, that uh, he instructs them not to be removed because you'll rip up both. And there it was a particular seed called the bearded darnel. And it produced something that looked exactly like wheat. And yet it had this poisonous quality to it. And so if you wanted to destroy somebody's field, this was all, you know, one of the ways, dastardly ways to do it would be to sow these kind of seeds among the wheat and you would destroy, basically destroy another's crop because you could only distinguish it clearly when it headed out and then trying to sift out you know, this bearded Darnell from the wheat would, <clears throat> for for us as human beings, be an impossible thing to do. Uh, but, uh, and so this kind of cunning intelligence, sly intelligence, I think is what makes it very difficult to distinguish, you know, uh, if this is friend or foe, or, you know, is this person gen being genuine, or are they manipulating? The circumstances. Uh, Walter writes, Father, is, is, is this where clericalism has its roots? We can understand that in the laity or secular world, this would be commonplace, but hope it is contained in the religious life. Am I being naive? <laughs> uh, 
well, I'm not going to call you naive, but, uh, you know, I think it's always those who are closest to Christ who betray him the most. <clears throat> and we've often talked about this, that, you know, religious people aren't incapable of having their delusions. And in fact, uh, they are the deepest delusions because they're often tied to one's belief in God or that one is told by God or put in a place by God to do something. Uh, and so one can convince oneself uh, that you are doing this uh, in accord with God's will. And, uh, and so those who get in positions of power uh, can fall, I think, into what you're talking about, though, which is a kind of clericalism. Uh, and, you know, clericalism goes both ways. And, you know, sometimes people put those who are ordained into this position of power that should not be, be given or idolized uh, in a certain way. And uh, I think, you know, with that, at times comes a kind of power that can take hold of an individual, uh, that they begin to desire that above all. And, you know, somebody who has position, especially position in a religious way, can be, again, the most manipulative, have a deep control over others because they often will know the conscience of another, the, the deepest truths of another's life. And so manipulate them uh, you know, with uh, great ease, uh, to again, to their own benefit. And uh, we see how destructive this has been, I think, within the, the life of, of the church. And so it's not limited to the secular world. And I think if the evil one is going to seek to trip individuals up, and especially religious individuals, it would be to draw them in to guile, you know, to, to make use of this kind of religious knowledge that they have in order not to serve others, but to manipulate them and control them. And so they become hucksters of religion, you know, as it were, the used car salesmen of religion, uh, uh, rather than true shepherds who are willing to lay down their life for the sheep. And there are all kinds of distortions that arise out of it, uh, none of which I think we really want to go into here in the context of the group. But I think Louise's sense of run the other way is probably the, the best advice. And, you know, we even Christ himself says about the scribes and the Pharisees we talked about last time, like they're like whitewashed tombs. So you know, stay away from them because they're like, you know, on the outside, they're brilliant white, you know, in the sun, you know, as whitewashed tombs would be, but within there's only corruption. And so steer clear. Uh, you know, I think when one sees this, but I think it's seeing it in ourselves is what, why John is putting it before us, that we are not incapable of this, you know, I think in our lesser moments, we're all capable of it uh, in great degree, you know, using our religiosity in one form or another to absent ourselves from certain things, maybe, you know, certain obligations even, uh, but to, to, again, to use it to control and manipulate others on an emotional level. So, you know, the religious person who gaslights another, you know, can drive them to the point of insanity, you know, because they twist the truth so much that they leave, leave the person thinking, you know, is my view of reality, including my view of my relationship with God, so distorted, you know, do, am I not seeing anything of, of the truth? And this is where it becomes something that's dastardly, you know, truly di diabolical, uh, because it's, uh, you know, harming a person at the depth of their religiosity. Let's 
see. Marine right scow is when you plan to hurt another soul. Right. Daniel Allen, not to change text, but this makes me think of the wisdom of St. Isaac. Above all things, love silence. I tend to regret my words more than biting my tongue. Yeah, I think when it comes to religiosity, you know, and religious things that we can have this tendency, you know, the one of the parts of his definition here is ambiguous uh, words or dark secrecy of heart. And so, you know, we can be rebuking another where there is this dark secrecy within our heart when we're not living the life at all. And again, taking a kind of sick delight in diminishing another person, even in regards to their spirituality or morality, or judging them even within our own hearts when, uh, when we're not living the life, or to put ourselves in the position of being a teacher when the reality within is the exact opposite too. Because to do that, there has to be a kind of guile. You have to be able to lie to yourself to present yourself as a teacher of religiosity uh, and to be able to live with yourself. Um, on some level, you have to be able to convince yourself that uh, you know that you can still communicate the faith in a genuine way or in a way that's going to touch other people's hearts and that's uh there's a kind of delusion in that that i think is tied to guile as well an evil person is a namesake and companion of the devil that is why the lord taught us uh, so to name the devil saying deliver us from the evil one and so the namesake and companion of, of the devil, that, uh, you know, a person who's evil, there's a little line. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Song of Bernadette, and about Bernadette Subaru. You've never seen that? Vincent Price and, uh, okay, it's sort of a classic. Uh, but, you know, she's the one who has this vision of Our Lady. And uh, the... A physician, uh, one of the physicians who was examining Bernadette, you know, was asking her questions, and and he one of the questions he asked her, you know, seeing what her mental stability was, asked her, you know, what you know, who who is evil, and uh, she responds by saying, uh, the the one who loves sin, not one who commits sin but one who loves it. And uh, it's sort of interesting that in his definition here, an evil person is a namesake, the companion, companion of the devil, that there is a kind of love of sin, a love of the darkness that develops in the heart of the one who's filled with guile. And you become a true son and daughter, you know, a namesake of the evil one. Uh, so, you know, simply because a person sins and even sins greatly does not mean that they're evil. Uh, there might be all sorts of reasons why a person does, and that's why we withhold judgment. But John's warning here is that, you know, a person can come to that point where, where they love it. Father, I have to start, uh, okay, night rosary via Zoom at 8. Uh, so Walter's going to be leaving us. Have a great night, and thanks for joining us. And uh, Cindy writes, love that movie. Yeah, it's a classic. If you haven't seen it, uh, certainly. I, I can't remember the main character. She was a famous actress in her own day, too. Uh, but very well done. Uh, so, number 22. Let us run from the precipice of hypocrisy and from the pit of duplicity. Hearing him who said, evildoers shall utterly perish. For like grass, quickly shall they be withered. And like green herbs, quickly shall they fall away. For such as these are food for demons. So to be double-minded about things and uh, to be hypocritical, to put on a mask 
of religiosity. Uh, all of these things lead us to the, the precipice and uh, make us then fodder for the evil one, that we become, uh, uh, you know, those that can be targeted, certainly, because uh, we have given ourselves over uh, to wearing these kinds of, of masks, you know, religiously, or again, trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Number 23, God is called love and also uprightness. That is why the wise man in the Song of Songs says to the pure of heart, uprightness hath loved thee. Also, the father of the wise man says, good and upright is the Lord. And of those who are his namesakes, he says that they are saved, who saveth them who are the upright of heart. And again, his countenance sees and visits those who are honest and just. So to live a righteous life and to be in a right relationship with God upright in the sense that we have our, our focus upon God, you know, as those created in his image and likeness, we are those who stand upright, uh, unlike the beast of the earth, whose focus is always on the ground beneath them. You know, our, we are created in such a way that our eyes should be uh, fixed upon the Lord. And, uh, and so uh, this is what draws us into the love of God and then makes, makes us his namesakes. We fully embrace our identity uh, when we keep our, our eyes and our minds and our hearts fixed upon the Lord. Any questions or comments so far? You see what he's saying there in this last paragraph 23. Uh, Rod tells us Jennifer Jones was Bernadette Subaru in that movie. All right, paragraph 24. The first property of the age of childhood is uniform simplicity. And as long as Adam had it, he did not see the nakedness of his soul or the indecency of his flesh. And so his experience, this uniform simplicity, uh, his experience was single-hearted and, and focused upon God alone and upon the good. And, uh, and it's only when, you know, they seize for themselves to know good and evil uh, to, and to know in the sense of experience it does then the, their experience of their own identity shift that they who would be gods who succumb to the temptation of the evil one could no longer control their own passions. And so they begin to see themselves and, uh, and each other in a different way. Uh, they nakedness and a kind of indecency see others in the way that you would objectify the others, and as well as distorting the relationship with God, that they seek to hide themselves, not only from the view of the other, but from God. And, uh, and so, you know, I think we often think about that, that, that temptation in an overly intellectual way, that, you know, eat of the fruit of the tree, and you will know for yourselves good and evil. And I think we, we think about that in an intellectual way. In, in a way that it's abstracted from the self and one's actions and experience uh, that is purely intellectual. But what they're, you know, what they succumb to uh, is something that draws them you know, not into uh, something that they can keep at arm's length or protect themselves from, that, that it becomes part of their very experience of life and self. And so uh, what is attacked there is their sense of self-identity uh, in a similar way that the evil one seeks to attack Christ uh, uh, after the 40 days in the desert. Uh, 
you know, to, to cast off the humanity and its poverty. And, uh, and he doesn't succumb to the illusion and all the promises of the evil one, whereas Adam and Eve do. And so what they experience uh, is a lessening of their identity uh, and the destruction of it. Number 25. Excellent too is that simplicity which in some by is in some by nature, yes, and blessed, but not as much as that which is grafted into a guileful soul with toil and sweat. For the former is sheltered and protected from much complexity and passion, but the latter leads to the highest humility and meekness. The former has not much reward, but the latter surpassingly infinite. Sort of a striking image and thought, isn't it? John is saying here that, you know, if one has had lived this kind of protected existence, uh, as if, uh, you know, one could not be tempted by the evil one, that they might have this kind of simplicity, or by nature, uh, he's saying, if somebody had that, that would in and of itself be good and blessed. But... Uh, in comparison to that which is grafted onto a guileful soul by toil and sweat, by the ascetic life, by struggling against the temptations that come to us uh, toward the vices that have been described here, uh, to humbly acknowledge and repent of our sin. This creates within oneself and brings one uh, to participate in the very humility and simplicity of Christ himself. And we've talked a little bit about this in Evergetinos, because we've talked about the parallel paths that we seem to be on in both text and in speaking about humility, that there, uh, in Evergetinos, if you remember, the, he describes this first level of humility where we're allowed to see our poverty and that we will be drawn along in that humility by these small falls where we will, you know, see where we've relied too much upon ourselves. And so we are stretched, as it were, in regards to that virtue is brought to a greater perfection. Uh, but then there's the kind of humility that comes through purely the grace of God and intimacy with him, where we begin to participate in the humility of Christ himself, uh, this divine virtue, we begin to experience a participation in the life of God. And, uh, and so this is why John says, you know, the person who may have been full of guile and yet repents and turns to Christ in humility and repentance is drawn into something that is far greater than what was lost by Adam, or what was it uh, that we read about in the previous statement, that we are drawn through this humility and repentance into the very life of Christ. And this is the extraordinary thing that reveals to us something of the, of the love of God and why we should love virtue and the things that lead to virtue, uh, because it's not self-discipline. It's not, again, seeking the perfection of natural virtue. It's seeking participation in the divine life. And so all the things that we struggle with, even this movement to a more and more perfect humility, which is comes through so much toil and sweat, uh, that what is ultimately is experienced is beyond imagination, a kind of infinite participation uh, in the humility and the meekness of Christ. Uh, uh, and so, again, you know, we are presented with this different image of the spiritual life that I, than I think that we often have. We often, as we've talked about, fall into a kind of moralism, a kind of legalism, uh, or, you know, lo looking at the ascetic life simply as a disciplining of the self, rather than this movement toward God 
and toward the life that he's made possible for us in Christ. And to have uh, the immediate goals as well as the end goal in mind is what should draw us. Because what we begin to be drawn by is this desire uh, for the fullness of love and life that is found in Christ. And as we've so often talked about, this is the more powerful uh, force of conversion for us than fear or anxiety. When we catch a glimpse of what it is that uh, God has called us to through repentance. When we do, when we begin to taste something of the beauty of that love, the sweetness of that love, and uh, as well as the virtues of humility and of meekness, then one begins to desire them. That the sweat, the toil that goes into attaining them is not seen as a hardship. And when that begins to emerge within the mind and the heart, then the, that's where deep transformation begins to take place because our attachment to the things of, of the world or the, our attachment to our ego begins to diminish. And what is always before our eyes is the love that we see within Christ. And we see it within everything within our life, you know, our marriages and our priesthood in our work and even in our sufferings, uh, the crosses that we bear. And so, you know, the, a kind of uh, invincible joy that we've talked about or an invincible hope begins to emerge within the human heart. Uh, because we, we have stepped beyond thinking of the virtues or even thinking of life in Christ within the limits of our own intellect or imagination and understanding. And we begin to see and understand these things in and through the gift of faith, which we've talked about before. The faith, especially as John of the Cross describes it, is this dark, obscure knowing. It's this experience of God as he is in himself. And so even when one finds oneself in darkness, uh, that one continues to move toward him because one begins to understand that the darkness is really an expression of God drawing us into that intimacy, into that experience of himself, that what served us well in, in the past in the spiritual life all the things that we knew and understood about God or have come to understand through our meditation or various forms of prayer now become inadequate in comparison to simply being drawn along uh, in and through faith. Uh, but we can't get there until we strive through the ascetic life to remove the impediments uh, to our not only receiving that gift, but maintaining our hold upon it. It's still always a gift to us, you know, this gift of contemplation that comes in, in and through the, uh, our faith. Uh, but nonetheless, we seek to prepare the mind and the heart as well as we can and to take hold of the grace that God gives us in and through that, that struggle. And, you know, I, I don't think religion and religiosity and Catholicism and the spiritual tradition can seem as anything but antiquated, boring, or a fairy tale or a myth to individuals in the way that it is often presented. Because it's often spoken of not out of this experience of the living God, but out again of a kind of intellectual understanding of the things that we've taught, been taught or read in books, but never have pursued with all of our heart. So insofar as, you know, we pray now and again, or we go to divine liturgy on the weekends and go to confession every once in a while, you know, our, the likelihood that our experience is going to be that of, you know, a, a deep immersion in the love of God is pretty limited. And we've talked about this before that, you know, Freud got something right 
you know, and about, about the fact that religion and faith can be an auxiliary construction. It can be a mental construct that we create for ourselves to make ourselves feel safe in a otherwise very frightening and sometimes horrible world. And, but what we are called to in and through faith and in Christ uh, and, and in the spirit is a participation fully in the, the living God, in the life of the living God and in the fullness of his love. And so we can't hold back and, you know, you know, priests from the pulpit, you know, say the same things over and over again or celebrate the liturgy morosely, you know, as if, you know, they have better things to do or the football game's coming on or uh, they're worn down by the pressures and demands of life or administrative duties. And, uh, you know, or we've heard the same readings over and over again that we've domesticated them. And we alter them in such a way that they do not shake us to our, our roots and uh, turn our life upside down in the sense of how we understand reality and how we understand our own identity and dignity as human beings who have been created in the image and likeness of God. And when we look again at the lives of the saints, we see so many of them, their, their lives being turned upside down by something in their life that makes them re-examine who they are. And often it is a very difficult and painful thing for them. Deep illness, sickness, failure, betrayal, you know, that opens their eyes uh, to what we are capable of in our sin, but also opens our eyes to the depths of God's mercy, allows us to see the cross not simply as a crucified criminal, but as an expression uh, of the love of God. And the refreshing thing I think about reading the fathers and reading one like John Climacus is that he doesn't varnish the truth any more than the gospel does. In fact, he tries to strip away the things within us that allow us to wear blinders about ourselves and uh, that prevent us from hearing the truth of the gospel. You know, that the kind of resistance that we experience psychologically, we can also experience religiously. What would my life be if I abandoned myself fully to God? What would it look like if I did not cling to ego, even for a part of a day? Or if I did not seek out my identity in the things that surround me, in my room, in my house, in my pocket, my iPhone, you know, what, what would life be like? And what would it really mean to look at others uh, with the eyes of love as Christ looks at us? And, you know, our ego can be so strong that that can be a terrifying prospect. And so terrifying that, again, we can domesticate, domesticate the gospel. We can hear the Beatitudes and we can hear Christ tell us, you know, do not resist one who's evil. And it's like we don't hear it. And same thing with his teaching on the Eucharist, even though we believe it and we say we believe it and we say amen when we receive the Holy Eucharist, you know, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. You know, the, I think it's either Chrysostom or, or St. Francis said that we do well, I think it's Chrysostom said we do well to experience at some point in our life, a kind of fear and trembling about receiving the Holy Eucharist. Not because that is a good thing, but it, it shows that we understand and are not taking lightly what it is that we are receiving and the impact that that has on our life and what it means to say amen to that reality because we're saying amen to a, a love that allows itself to be broken and poured out for others. And if we are have any guile within us, 
then our minds are going to work in such a way as not only to con convince others to do our bidding, but to convince ourselves uh, to serve our baser needs, even under the cloak of religiosity. Religion and religiosity on a certain level can give a, a certain level of peace. And even prayer and meditation can give a certain level of emotional peace, alter our emotional state. But does that mean that we are opening ourselves to God and to his love? You know, we aren't engaging in a mantra when we're crying out the Jesus prayer. You know, that there is something deep, the deeply personal, uh, their relational and acknowledging in humility the truth about ourselves, the truth about who Christ is and our need for his mercy. And, uh, and so, again, this guile isn't only of the worst sociopaths or psychopaths. We have to have the capacity to see the sociopath and psychopath within ourselves. And as well as see this scribe and Pharisee within ourselves you know i think when we read the gospel we're very capable of you know joining in the crowd of you know this sort of contempt for them or you know were jesus own townspeople you know or where he 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 performs a miracle and they beg him to leave and we think what fools they you know he just performs a miracle and they beg him to leave their their town and, you know, but we rarely ask ourselves, well, why did they beg him to leave? What were they afraid, afraid of? You know, and, and then to be able to ask ourselves, well, how often do we keep Christ at arm's length? You know, where we're doing exactly the same thing. Okay. It's... Uh, you're, somebody's going to have to help me out here. Are we on number 24? No, 25. Is that correct? 26. Okay. Let all of us who wish to attract the Lord to ourselves draw near to him as disciples to the master, simple, without hypocrisy, without duplicity or guile, not out of idle curiosity. He himself is simple and not composite. And he wants souls to come to him to be simple and guileless. For you will surely never see simplicity bereft of humility. So like is attracted to like. I don't know if there's a simpler way to describe what John is saying here. That uh, Christ is simplicity. He is guilelessness. He is humility. And how do we enter into a relationship and intimacy with him except by becoming like him? If we are driven by curios idle curiosity or anything else, then we are not going to enter into that, into the relationship in the way that he desires us to enter into it, to experience the fullness of that love. It will always be keeping him at, at arm's length. And so there can be a curiosity that makes a person pick up the gospel and read it. You know, what is this Christianity, Christianity stuff about? Or same thing about the fathers, you know, and their writings too, and the ascetic tradition. But it doesn't necessarily mean that one is going to grasp it, or better said, to be grasped by it, to be taken hold of by it, to be captivated by it this is what our faith has to be able to do for us to allow ourselves to be taken hold of uh, to behold the love of christ is to be held by it you know to, to as those who truly see the love that is expressed on the cross again it's not in an abstract way in a notional way it's in an experiential fashion where it takes hold of our hearts and we are drawn into it and so john is telling us here 
let all of us who wish to attract the Lord to ourselves draw near to him as disciple to the master, as those who seek to emulate him in every way and live like him. His eyes are going to be attracted to those who are, are seeking him and seeking to follow along the path that he has drawn us upon. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my capacity for chat here. So people might just have to, hold on for a second. Oh, there, I got it. So David Swiderski writes, a priest in Spain explained this well to me. All churches are filled with stained glass windows of the saints who let the light of God enter into our lives. By struggling, we slowly clean our own windows and dark stains to let in the light of God to enter into the world, this world and our communities, right? That, you know, part of the ascetic life is removing this impediment to our being able to see the, the light of his love and the light of his truth. And the, the saints, I mean, this is why the saints are always held up to us as well, because they are living icons of Christ and the gospel. And so reading about their lives draws us into the truth. If we are always looking at what is bad in us, Marine writes, in the same way we gaze at uh, far, how far we have come closer to him. Can't is that a are you is that a statement or are you questioning? Yeah, that? it's just that it was more of a thought. Like if we keep focusing on, like it's almost like a perfectionist. You know, it's never going to be perfect. I'm always struggling. But um, in the same way you were saying, gaze inward and see what's that in. But in the same way, in the positive note, because we're always looking at the negative. Can you uh, gaze in, like David said, I re in remembrance of what was, That's right. what is today. So That's I think- a good point, yeah. yeah like there's a saint trying to come out, right? But we're always thinking he's not even in there. Right, that it's not simply- It's hopelessness. It's not just introspection and our repentance is not only the focus upon the sin itself. Because if it was that, it would draw us into despondency and despair. This right. is where, again, I think the Eastern Fathers draw us into this sense of that movement of repentance, of being, moving toward God, that the acknowledgement of the sin uh, gives rise to contrition that then brings us to turn back to the Lord and to seek his healing. And the end of that is renewed joy of being restored to that intimacy with him again. So the word that they use is sorrowful joy, which uh, we don't have any English equivalent for. And so it's sort of hard to capture it, but uh, ultimately our eyes are to be always fixed upon Christ, uh, in, you know, not simply on our own poverty, but on what, you know, what he can draw us to and what he's done for us by taking that upon himself. So that brings us to 830. I'm sorry for the cutout here tonight and hopefully Ren will be able to do a good edit here for us and uh, keep it pieced together. Uh, but these are beautiful, you know, we're all the way up to step 24. And when he begins to talk about uh, things like humility and love and contemplation, it becomes more and more challenging, you know, I think for us, uh, because again, it's and challenging for the writers as well, whether it's John of the Cross or John Climacus, trying to capture that which is this experience of divine love. And so be, be patient with yourself and read and reread these things uh in order that they might settle deeply within the heart okay so when we close there uh, as always with the our father in the name of the father and of the son and the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Amen. Lord God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Thanks.